0: Welcome to Mormonland, the Salt Lake Tribune's podcast about LDS culture and teachings. I'm Dave Noyce, Managing Editor of the Tribune, joined by our senior religion writer, Peggy Fletcher-Stack. Hi, Peggy. Hi, Dave. Good to have you here. Our guest today is Adam Miller, a professor of philosophy at Collin College in Texas. Several years ago, Adam published an insightful little gem of a book called Letters to a Young Mormon. Now he has a second edition out with some new chapters. Adam, welcome. Thanks. Glad to have you here. So... Adam, let's dive in. Despite the title, your book seems to be capturing the imagination and attention of Mormons of all ages. Um, Why the new edition? Uh, The big
1: impetus for the new edition was the chance to publish it with Deseret Book this time and reach a bigger, broader
0: audience, the audience that you indicated. A bigger Mormon audience. Yeah, yeah, a bigger Mormon audience, yeah. yeah. So... um,
2: so the two chapters you added, I noticed one was on the Sabbath, and one was on stewardship, yes. r- correct? Mm-hmm. So why the Sabbath? What what were your concerns about that? It does, uh, from my view, it does seem like lots of young Mormons see it as a, just a list of do's and don'ts. Is that what prompted you to write a more grand vision of what it is?
1: Well, throughout the book, I'm really interested in thinking about basic Mormon practices like prayer, scripture study, Sabbath worship, uh, and trying to rethink from the inside out the significance of those practices and the kind of impact they can have uh, on our connection with God and the divine. Uh, and I think the Sabbath day is at the heart of what it means to be a practicing Mormon, to observe the Sabbath and to give God a chance to interrupt the normal flow of our crazy, hectic, self-obsessed lives and uh, point us towards something bigger.
2: But I didn't see very many mentions of actual practices. It was more theoretical and theological.
1: Well, I do kind of lay out a framework describing the way that as an interruption of our normal experience of time, the sabbath day opens up a chance to live time in general differently but it's also the case i think that that chapter on the sabbath day has the most explicit and detailed and extended description of exactly what to do (laughs) on the sabbath day because it includes my the full description of my mother's recipe for uh homemade bread (laughs) and of how to how to do it how to make it
0: (laughs) i see how that plays into it that's interesting i know mormon leaders have been stressing sabbath day observance a lot in recent months and in the coming year i guess they plan to do more did that play into the decision at all uh it may have might have put it on my radar a little bit uh but no
1: i think it was more the fact that it as far as i can tell it's just at the heart of what it means to be Mm -hmm. mormon to to literally show up on sunday and to observe the sabbath
0: your other chapter on stewardship there's a strong environmental pitch in it actually um Do you think there's more members, uh, church leaders, could do to, as you say, tend to the earth?
1: Yeah, I think there's room for us to take our responsibility more seriously when it comes to environmental stewardship.
0: I mean, you sort of give a a, a sort of broad philosophical and scriptural reason behind it. Are there any specific things you'd like to see done or could be done? I know the church has had some green meeting house initiatives they've been doing.
1: Yeah, I've heard about those green meeting house initiatives and I'm intrigued by them. It seems like uh with the kind of resources and manpower at our disposal if we were very serious about environmental stewardship, there's a lot we could do.
2: And so so again for the uh, this new edition, do you ho- hope to reach a different audience than you reached before or just a bigger audience? In other words, do you think that the tone of it, the writing of it could reach uh for lack of a better term conservative mormons or who who's reading this and who do you want to read this
1: i've It's always been a little bit of a mystery to me who's reading this <laughs> <laughs> I've, I'm, I've been glad that there are people who are uh, i don't I don't think that there's uh, any reason that uh, people from all different sides of the political spectrum wouldn't find, wouldn't find some of the reflections in there worthwhile. I mean, for me, a lot of the work I do in the book is very, very practical. It's very pragmatic. At the same time as it has a philosophical flavor, it's always geared toward uh, questions about lived religious experience that I think run diagonal to our normal hyperpartisan partisan uh, conservative, liberal divide.
0: L- like other faiths I guess the LDS church is sort of dealing with I guess has been termed as a era of doubt a lot especially among younger people uh the church has been confronting some of this now in your book uh in in even in the early edition you 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 talk about this also and you argue that doubt isn't necessarily an enemy of faith as I think a lot of people would see it you almost see this feeding faith you you write about you know great doubt great faith and and great effort could you explain that
1: yeah, I think it's I think it's possible for doubt and faith to work hand-in-hand hand very productively. Uh, as far as I can tell, doubt is just a normal part of being a human being. It's as normal as needing to take another breath or being hungry for another lunch. It's just a kind of—doubt is a kind of symptom of the fact that we feel like we're hungry for more information— that there's something that we need to know that we don't know. And in that respect, like hunger, it can be a powerful motivator toward discovering what it is that we feel like we're missing. Now, I think it's certainly possible for doubt to to turn black and curdle and be very destructive. But I think it's also possible for doubt to be extraordinarily productive as we attempt to sort out the difference between what's true and what isn't. And for me, in my Personally, I I, I think this is different for different people, but for me personally, doubt's been a really crucial, central part of my experience of God as God has kind of step-by-step, year-by-year whittled me down to the bare essentials, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think, to help make more clear to me what kinds of things are really important and what kinds of things I maybe don't need to worry about.
2: So what what would you recommend the LDS church leaders do for this younger generation many of whom are questioning basic tenets and 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 not being satisfied how would, would you recommend that they talk about doubt the way you just did or what could they do to help this this millennial generation
1: well i think answers to these kinds of problems probably have a lot more to do with the way that we handle things at a local level, and maybe not so th- this isn't it doesn't feel to me like a problem that can be fixed from the top down necessarily right I mean it feels to me like dealing with the kinds of, of doubts and problems and questions uh, that are associated with uh, with millennials and uh, uh generation z and and younger mormons uh, that's the kind of thing that, that I think uh, can be handled most productively locally one-on-one at the, at the at the level of interactions where you can see people face to face and hear what the problems are and take them seriously and have a chance to to mourn with them uh, in their problems and thus uh, you know work toward finding some kind of solution together
2: and maybe just even parents and children for example do you have children do they have <laughs> doubts
1: <laughs> i do have children i'm sure i'm sure they have doubts of different kinds they're uh, uh, I have a daughter who's 17 and sons that are 13 and 11, and initially the impetus for me for writing this book was to write it for them. Uh, all of the letters are addressed to, to Dear S, who is my daughter, Samantha, Um I think the parent and child that kind of that level, the parent and child level, is exactly the the crucial level where uh, if positive changes are going to take place, that's that's where. I've listened to the last couple months. I I listened to the interview you guys did with uh, Tom Christopherson, and one of the things that struck me uh, most profoundly in that interview was how he described his relationship with his parents uh, and his you know his his. Being invested in Mormonism didn't depend on necessarily on you know what people in Salt Lake were saying or not, but it depended in the end on the quality of the relationship he had with his parents, and I think that's that's got to be true generally.
0: Do you think that uh, not just local leaders, but even some parents, I think when they start hearing younger members or any member express some sort of da- doubt or skepticism, they they get scared yeah. and they turn off or they they may not react the right way necessarily. Uh, uh, what's your advice to them when, when children or members confront them with some of their questions?
1: Well, my advice would be to take those questions seriously, uh, to not brush them aside, uh, to assume that uh, their children are working on these problems in good faith, Uh, Out of the best motivations. And uh, a lot of our success in these things, I think, hinges on, as you indicated, our ability to step beyond the immediate reaction of fear that we're going to lose them or lose something important in our relationship with them or in their relationship with the church. To, to step outside beyond that fear and to, and to you know, take them in our arms with a kind of fierce and fearless love that, that won't be stymied by whatever kinds of problems or questions may be occupying their attention for the
0: moment. Sometimes related to when these things come up is the the fallibility of of church leaders, and you you address that also in in your book. You talk about that people need prophets, not idols. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, prophets are people, too, from what I can tell. I've never met one in person. (laughs) Uh, I think it's dangerous for us uh, as a people, as a culture, as Mormons, to treat our leaders, our prophets and apostles, as if they were basically perfect people, not only because it sets us up for disappointment and makes unrealistic expectations of them, but because I think it hides something fundamental about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's that Christ can work with and through people who are weak and make mistakes and have their own problems and shortcomings. That's the good news of the gospel, is that Christ can do that. Not only Christ can work not only with prophets and apostles in Salt Lake, but He can work with people who are who are weak and have problems of their own wherever they are, and that includes me, and that that includes you. That's the good news. And if we hide from that, if we hide from the fact that God can work through them, even though they have their own weaknesses, then we also end up hiding from ourselves the fact that He can work with us despite our weaknesses.
2: So. Before, again, for this next generation, uh, one of the really hard moments in the past few years has been the November of 2015 policy about gay couples being called apostates and their children, not being allowed to be blessed or baptized until they're 18. Um, what do you say to young people who say, well, that can't have come from a prophet, that That must have been one of those fallible mistakes, and yet the church is sticking by that policy. How do you help young people grapple with that? It's one thing to say, oh yeah, they're fallible, they make mistakes, but then on the other hand, the church sort of expects people to go along with these policies.
1: That's that's a tough question. (laughs) Uh.
2: What would you say to your daughter? She said, "Dad, I just don't believe this."
1: If she came to me and said, "Dad, I just don't believe this," uh, I would respect that. Um, but I would also, I would also want to emphasize to her. I, I would want to emphasize to her that her relationship to the church and to God, in particular didn't need to hinge alone on that particular question. Uh, and that there's even disagreeing, maybe because she disagrees, there's value to her continuing to be part of the community, continuing to contribute to the body of Christ.
2: But the, the trouble is, how, how many times have I heard young Mormons say, I can't be in a church that teaches this, mm-hmm. which uh, they perceive as hate speech or exclusionary. So how do you help people say, sure, I can stay part of a church. I might not believe this policy. Those are tricky, hard questions for this generation.
1: Yeah, and I think it's often the case that that those questions are going to have to be answered individually. People are going to have to decide for themselves if that's if the church's current policy on this issue is... Uh, going to be once and for all a make or break question for them in terms of their relationship to the church. And if people did decide that it was and that they couldn't stay, uh, I can certainly respect and understand that, though I would hope that uh, people that do make that decision could also understand how uh, people could nonetheless, disagreeing or agreeing with the policy, uh, continue to feel like uh, their involvement in the church was valuable.
0: Does your book confront the policy issue at all? I, I know it, it talks about same-sex uh, uh, feelings, relationships. Uh, do, do you confront the policy at all in the in the new uh, edition? I don't. Okay.
1: I don't. Um, one of the changes that I made to the book, I made a handful of slight changes to the original material in addition to the new material. One of the changes I made to the original material was uh, to add a full paragraph in the chapter on sex, uh, trying to make clear to people who uh, are gay or uh, lesbian or bisexual or or transgender that there is a a place for them in the body of Christ uh, and that God loves them.
0: So I saw that paragraph. and So that's in the new one, but wasn't in the previous version. No, it wasn't version. Okay. in the previous version. Interesting. Uh, the other, uh, another issue that comes up, and you have a daughter, so, uh, is women's, women's rights, women's issues uh, certainly came to the fore uh, in the last decade, and, uh, as they have before. Do you see further steps that the Mormon Church maybe could or should take uh, to, to help resolve any equity gaps that some people might see exist?
1: It seems clear to me that the church's position on this involves two related claims, drawing on here in particular on the family proclamation. That one, the differences between men and women are real and spiritually significant. And that two, men and women are intended by divine design to be equal partners. And it seems obvious to me that going forward here in the 21st century, an integral part of defending the family will mean defending women and defending uh, full-throatedly the claim that men and women are intended to be equal partners in God's eyes. I don't think it's possible to defend the family in any serious way without rooting out the misogyny that has been baked into our culture and institutions
0: and politics for millennia. So you don't see necessarily the fact that it's an all-male priesthood as really the linchpin on that issue at all, right?
1: I'm open to different ways of uh, working on the problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't necessarily seem to me to be the case that uh, an all-male priesthood rules out the possibility of a real equal partnership. it maybe makes it more difficult in some kinds of ways. Uh, but it it does seem obvious to me that an all-male priesthood would only be legitimate in God's own eyes to the degree that it takes that necessity of equal partnership seriously.
2: So you brought up the proclamation on the family and, uh, and family issues. What about single women who never will marry in this life who find the proclamation uh, you know just uh, painful and they're not particularly satisfied with the idea that oh you'll get married in the hereafter mm-hmm. that's not a very satisfying response to the single mormon women i know how, how do you how do you fit them into your theology of the family or or mormon teachings I guess I should say men who are not married too, but especially women.
1: Well, I think it's I think it could certainly be true that married or not, the differences between men and women can nonetheless be of great spiritual significance. Uh, and I think it's definitely true uh, that in the church, in our zeal to protect and promote and defend the beautiful things that come out of families, uh we often do a poor job of accounting for the huge swath of people who don't quite fit the mold or the ideal that that we've been promoting and i think to to that degree uh we have to watch out we have to be careful as a church to not turn the family itself into a kind of idol that gets in the way of people's relationships with God. The whole point of emphasizing the family to the degree that we do, as far as I understand it, is that it opens doors to relating to each other and being connected to God that uh, that are often hard to open. And if the family instead gets in the way of people connecting with God, then I think we're probably talking about it the wrong way.
0: You know, the church recently published an essay about the theology the belief in a heavenly mother or mother in heaven which seems like it could maybe play a role in some of the things we're talking about would you like to see more explanation more exposition more guidance on that teaching that could be taught to members and and how that could influence family relationships and everything
1: i'd love to see us talk more about heavenly mother
0: do you have any insights
2: (laughs) (laughs) i don't
1: i don't i mean as as a theologian uh I mean, I'm especially curious in how uh, all of this works out in terms of doctrines of the Godhead and uh, how it would relate to, uh, to classic questions about uh, connections between the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. I mean, it, it raises a host of, of extremely interesting and probably extraordinarily difficult questions <laughs> to answer, uh, but ones that I think are worth asking, and I would love to see us ask them.
0: And by asking, you mean church leaders?
1: well all of us collectively okay. i mean i don't think uh i don't think it's the case that in mormonism uh the business of thinking about god and the doctrines of the church is just a top down affair it seems pretty obvious to me that uh that, that as a as a church that so strongly emphasizes uh the role of a lay membership in doing all the work that we do that, that there's room for a kind of bottom up work in thinking about these things as well
2: so we we sit here poised to uh note the passing of president thomas s monson at his funeral on friday and sometime next week the LDS church will appoint and will sustain a new leader most likely russell m nelson how would you describe the church he's inheriting how is it different than 10 years ago when president monson took the realm helm And uh, what are your hopes for the future? Easy
1: questions. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My hopes for the future are pretty straightforward. My hopes for the future are that the church will continue to more and more effectively embody Christ in the world in response to all of the different kinds of troubles uh, that we're presently dealing with and that are knocking hard on the door. And that as a result, the church will be a place that, that my children and grandchildren will uh, recognize themselves as wanting to be a part of. I mean, for me, that's that's the measure of what I want from the church uh, in the next 20 40 years, is, is I want the church to be a place where it's clear to my grandchildren that this is what they want to dedicate their lives to.
0: Do you foresee more ecumenical outreach on, on that front with the LDS church, uh, embracing more of Christianity as a whole, you know, uh, the, the wider? Would um, that help reinforce that?
1: I'm not sure. I mean, I think on the one hand, it would really do us a lot of good to better understand the bulk of the rest of the tr- Christian tradition to which we belong. I think often we have a pretty we have pretty skewed, pretty narrow perception of the rest of what's going on with 99% of the rest of Christianity mm-hmm. uh, that, that gets in the way of us understanding both what we have in common with them and gets in the way of understanding, I think, the the differences between us and the valuable differences between us and other traditions. Uh, whether or not that took the form of our cooperating with other traditions uh, in terms of theological engagement, uh, I don't know if that's super important. Uh, But I think there's certainly occasions for us to be uh, engaged in broad ecumenical coalitions responding to really pressing moral and social problems, especially the kinds of of inequality that uh, the millennial generation is increasingly impatient with the rest of our patients with.
0: I know the hope you expressed uh, to Peggy, to the previous question of uh, fully embracing Christ That's in your foreword to your book, uh, your new edition, of course. And we appreciate your joining with us on Mormonland. Good luck with the book. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Peggy, thanks again. Always a pleasure. You can read more about this at sltrib.com and other things Mormon. And we'll see you next time on Mormonland.